0: Welcome to the Market Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi from Aperium Ventures and our guest, Paul Bannister, the Chief Strategy Officer for Cafe Media.
1: Paul, thanks for being here. Thanks, Sorry. Thanks, Ari. Great to be here. I've followed you on Twitter for
2: years and uh, love, love uh, how you think about stuff. So this is exciting for me.
0: Most of my interactions with Paul is when I say something outrageous on Twitter and he just very calmly corrects the record for what actually happened. Uh, and I appreciate <laughs> the fact checking. <laughs>
1: I'll to try to keep doing that. Um, for, let's start,
0: with, for those who aren't aware, with Cafe Media, which is kind of an interesting company, sort of a hybrid between a publisher, an ad network, and a tech provider. Do you want to kind of explain to the audience what Cafe Media is?
1: Uh, sure. Yeah. So to state the obvious, like today's world, world of digital advertising is really complicated. And getting more complicated, generally speaking. And so for more and more publishers, it used to be that you could like set up an ad server and set up some ad networks and like make some money. And that's like harder and harder to, to be true these days. So what we do is we act as kind of an exclusive ad representative for publishers, um, mainly kind of like SMBs, um, you know, independent content creators, small, small businesses, um, where it's really like not. In their best interest to run the ad server, run the exchange partnerships, run the ad networks, deal with all the, you know, the madness of of ad stuff these days. We kind of take all that kind of burden out of their hair. So we, we run the ad server. We have a direct sales team that goes and sells the creators and publishers that we work with. We deal with all the ad tech stuff. And so it's, um, it's been a good thing. And we these days are, you know, more and more. Getting into the world of helping publishers and creators with kind of other parts of their businesses, we have like an SEO team that helps publishers with their SEO. We have a email marketing team that functions like an agency for some of our publishers to help them like build, you know, get their email strategy, you know, working well and and gathering emails and and sending emails out, out to the to their readers. We have a PR team that does PR for publishers, things like that. So really, like working more and more to enable these creators to like, get their content in more places, build their audience, and, and do more and more with their business.
0: And and so the reason I wanted to have you on, on the show was that I feel like you really have your finger on the pulse of the publisher ecosystem. Um, you, you're involved in a lot of the standard setting, you're involved in the sandbox activities. So we kind of want to think of the show as like this, what it's like to be a publisher nowadays in 2023. Um, so I'll just kind of hand you that question. What is it like? To be a digital publisher in 2023,
1: I uh, actually had breakfast this morning with um, some, you know, somebody senior at a, at a very large publisher, not one of our customers, and we were talking about how like the beginning of every year is just like this like chaos of like oh my god, forty six things have just happened. I got to figure out what to do. You spend the first half of the year, first three quarters of the year, like trying to get everything working, and then the last quarter of the year, you're just kind of like sort of on autopilot in Q4 because it's where the most money comes in and, and whatever else. You know, this year is no different. There's a lot going on. Talking about AI stuff. Talking about, you know, what's going on with ad exchanges these days. What is the the future of integrating with with DSPs instead of SSPs? Where, you know, what's going on with Google and the DOJ and whatever? There's so many things to stay on top of and feel like you're ahead of. Otherwise, you fall behind quickly. So there's a lot going on, and you you have to keep up with it to to keep moving forward.
0: Yeah, never a boring, never a boring day, and uh, I think that's what keeps uh, companies like my architecture in business because we constantly have to keep <laughs> on top of the stuff. Um, uh, and what about like the day running the the business? Um, you know, trying to stay in the black on you know declining revenues from digital and competing with Google, et cetera. What, what's it like to be in charge of monetization at a digital publisher?
1: You know, for us and for our publishers, you know, what I think was an important decision a number of years ago, where we said we're just going to do programmatic. We're going to become expert at it. We're going to become best in the world and really optimize our our stack. You know, work work with advertisers via private marketplaces and 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 preferred deals and things like that, and really optimize for that and set up our business around that. And I think that that has proven to be very successful. Now. We're sort of like adding to that and saying, like, we net for us now we think getting into into direct sales is a place to go, a place where we can grow and do more. And we're we hiring up a big direct sales team right now to really kind of go after that that opportunity more. But I do think that for us, it's worked well to really try to focus on like one thing at a time, not take on too many, you know, crazy problems simultaneously. Like perfect something and then move on to the next. So um, we've had the benefit of being able, of that strategy kind of working well so far
2: two questions so is the direct sales effort a result of the programmatic market just moving towards pmps and and you know less less open exchange
1: i think a little bit that i think it's a number of factors i think partly it's the end of cookies coming i think is making buyers thinking about like how do i get access to the audiences that i want the data i need for targeting get better information for for measurement and and working directly is a component of that it's trends like that that's kind of leading us down this path, and thinking that this is a pretty big opportunity right now.
2: Yeah, and then question two: like, where where are the areas of opportunity for a typical publisher, whether it's you know a, a cafe publisher or or not? Like, are they you know getting super interested in content and commerce? Are they trying to do more with video? Like, where's the real, real areas of, of opportunity? I would say the two biggest things for us. So,
1: one big area of focus is commerce. So, some of our publishers already do pretty well with commerce, affiliate, things like that. But we're kind of building out teams internally to kind of help more with that and do more things in that space. We think that more and more value in like trusted content being out in the world, helping consumers make decisions about what to buy, and then obviously building a revenue model off of that. So, we think that's kind of a, a big area. I think the other thing is really focusing on audience engagement you know above and beyond just like audience growth i think for a while it's it's great to get more and more visitors showing up to your to your site um that's really good but how do you engage them more how do you get them to come back how do you know more about them um and that's where things obviously like you know like email marketing like just brand building in general and making it so people really know who you are and want to come back and, and and see what you have to say so those are big areas of focus for us and i think those are sort of evergreen things where it's like they're they're built on trust and i think that's where where publishers do best is where they really lean into trust and really you know, building that trust with their audiences.
0: You mentioned uh, commerce media. Is there a tie-in with retail media? Um, are the big retailers talking directly to publishers or is it more arm's length through a DSP?
1: I think it's beginning to happen. I think for a while it was just through the DSP and somewhat arm's length. But now I think as more retail media networks are figuring out that they don't have all the supply that they need they can't get access to the scale audiences that, that they need just purely through buying through through a dsp and and figuring out that working directly with publishers is the way to go it's very early days but i think that that trend is beginning to happen now
0: one of the subjects i definitely wanted to tee up for you is the sandbox um i made a joke uh on twitter which was a little true which was you know one of the reasons i sold beeswax was just not to have to deal with the sandbox <laughs> um and um if uh-huh. the uh, but um, it, it obviously has a big effect on publishers. Um, Flock's dead. Topics is on uh, you know uh, shaky ground. Uh, there's Fledge. There's a bunch of other stuff. What's the state of play right now, in your opinion?
1: You know, it's been going on. What is it a three plus years since Google said you know cookies are going away, and then we've still got you know roughly eighteen months or so before before it happens. Assuming there's no more delays. I think who the heck knows, but. It does feel like, for the first time, truly Google and you know the Chrome team in particular is like really, really engaged, really deploying resources against this, really rolling out new features, really working with people who are who are leaned in and trying to you know make things work. Like they seem much more committed at this point than ever before, which is which is good to see, Um, although somewhat scary because as they, as they're committed, it, it makes it more and more likely that there's no more delays and then this is it. And, and so I, I I hope that if that is true that Companies that have sort of taken a wait and see approach are like, okay, I got to get involved in this and got to sort of figuring things out. Knowing now that like maybe the clock really is ticking to the end, right now we've all got to get out of it.
0: Right, but I, I guess like if the clock is ticking to the end, um, are any of the sandbox proposals um, at a point where they would have a business impact? On uh, would they be ready for prime time, and would they actually have any business impact?
1: We think Fledge is pretty exciting and really it can't replace. All the scenarios that kind of existing ad tech built on third-party cookies can do, but it can replace a pretty good number of them, and it creates a couple of interesting new opportunities as well. So that's the one that we're spending the most the most time on because we think that's the place where there's the most opportunity and the most to 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 really build something new and better in the future.
0: Give us Fledge for dummies in like 15 seconds. What's Fledge?
1: Fledge is built to replace the idea of retargeting. So instead of dropping retargeting pixels on on your site as an advertiser, and then using your DSP to retarget them elsewhere, you drop Fledge tags on your site. And instead of the information being stored like in your DSP or DMP or something, the information is stored in the browser. And that way, the, you can do a lot of the same things as you can with retargeting today, but you never get to see the information. So it's stored in the browser, so it's like separate from ad tech. So it's much more privacy friendly but let you do kind of like key use cases that are retargeting, but things around you retargeting that are interesting too.
2: What a great explanation. Thank you. I understand it now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so one of the main purposes of this podcast is just to give deal flow to Eric. Um, so what, what interesting areas are there <laughs> in start, of startups that uh, publishers, that get you excited and that, you know, investors might be interested in at an early stage?
1: I said AI before. I think AI is a really interesting space. I think there's a, t- a ton of, Potential risks and, and, and landmines. I think there's a lot of potential opportunities. We, you know, I'll use us as an example. We actually bought a company 18 months ago called Topic. It's built on GPT three. And what it basically is, is it's almost like content inspiration. It like analyzes your content. It analyzes how you, how your content ranks on search. It figures out who you're competing with. And then it recommends new areas for you as an author to like create new content where you can compete and win more. So it's like using AI to really like. So almost like solve writer's block, like how do you get new ideas of what to do and where you and where you can win. And so it's like, I think there are lots and lots of things like that. And that's obviously content specific. But I think AI has, you know, large language models, generative AI, like that space has a lot of really cool use cases that are being figured out right now that it's really early days that like, I'm certainly watching closely and trying to figure out what else is out there.
0: Do you think there's a risk uh, to quality publishers that AI is going to make it too easy to produce low-quality content and you'll just have content farms and made-for-advertising take over the web?
1: I'm optimistic that the problems that Google solved 10 years ago with the original content farms will apply now and will make it very hard for those sites to get traffic. Maybe they'll get traffic through paid and effectively turn into just pure MFA sites and things like that. I'm a little less worried about that. Outcome. I'm optimistic that like systems exist today to kind of watch for that. I think people will try, but I'm optimistic they will fail.
2: Just given the, the discussion on Google, are you guys familiar with core web
1: vitals? Yep. yep.
2: yeah. Yeah. So my, my my sense is there's probably, you know, some sort of addition to core web vitals that will, you know, detect for either, you know, sort of like generated or, uh, you know, low quality content that then will, you know, again, to the extent that Google remains relevant as where people get a lot of information upon search, we'll rank, you know, some of this uh, AI driven stuff accordingly. But it's, it's, it's interesting. And I think it's a real, real risk.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Eric, gave us core web vitals for dummies in 15 seconds.
2: It's uh, Google's attempt. It's it's web.dev forward slash vitals. Um, It's Google's attempt to make sure that the most relevant, highest uh, user experience um, and quality content. You know, obviously, then websites and publishers um, get ranked uh, higher in search.
0: Got it. Um, so one of the changes that I've thought about a lot is, uh, as cookies go away, that it seems to benefit publishers uh, because um, in the old world, the advertisers had the leg up. If they knew who a user was, they could just pick them off on the cheapest site available. And in the new world, there has to be more cooperation with publishers to get context data, their user data. First question would be like, is that a good way to look at it? And second question is like, how are publishers thinking about identity and participating in UID2 and other things like that?
1: I think, you know, it's such a weird thing to um, like forecast how it's going to happen. I think what you said is, is certainly right. There are a lot of reasons to believe that the end of cookies could be good for publishers. I think there's also a lot of reasons to believe it could be bad for publishers. Like buyers are, like, do I think that the top 500 advertisers will figure out ways to get around this and make it work? A fair amount of which will be, you know, direct sales and things like that, if they need to, and working with big publishers, and 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 that's obviously beneficial to publishers. Uh, I think that's true. I do wonder if for smaller advertisers and the DSPs they work with are going to struggle to when they lose the ability to target exactly who they want. Are they just going to say, like, forget this stuff on the web. We're just going to, I'm just going to buy my ads on search and, and Facebook. Right. And that's the end of it. And like, there are pros and cons. and It's hard to know which is exactly right. I'm generally more optimistic, but it's like, it's, it's so hard to forecast.
0: It's sort of the, what happened with, uh, with ATT um, is that like it made certain user acquisition strategies no longer uh, ROAS positive, and that made certain advertisers effectively exit the market
1: and And so it's like, yeah, how how do you if that's gonna happen again, you know focusing more attention at the 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 top of the tail with the biggest advertisers makes sense because that's those are the ones that they're gonna figure it out because they've got the tools they've got the need, um but all the small ones are gonna c- could dry up
0: right, okay, second half of the question um how are you and how are publishers in general thinking about participating in any uh of these um next generation identity solutions like u i d two the live ramp initiatives, ID5, etc.
1: I mean, for us, we we're partnering with all of them. We're trying them all out. We think it's still pretty early days. We think today there is like little that's being given up. Um, I think in the longer run, it is a question of whether those sort of ID systems are the right way to go or things that are more like clean rooms where you've got a real, it's a real direct advertiser-to-publisher relationship. It's just it's a true one-to-one. Those feel like they're more privacy friendly, data protection friendly, and, and that probably is a good thing. But you know, UID2 and RAMP ID are, are great examples of tools that, you know, those companies are not standing still and they're building more and more controls into what they're doing. So it's like for us, we're like trying it out, seeing what, what works, watching things. We can always pull back later if we need to and we haven't given up very much. Um, I think we're probably leaned in more than most publishers because we are so programmatic heavy, it's it's more necessary. I think other other big publishers are still mostly in a a wait-and-see kind of mode before they really commit to anything like that.
0: Is it fair to say that if you have scale, if you're a large publisher, you're more likely to want to keep your data for yourself and go the clean room route? And if you're um, smaller or more dependent on programmatic or open exchange, you're more likely to try to go one of these ID routes, or is that not the right way to think about it?
1: I think to, I think so far that's been a true statement. Um I think again, maybe maybe there are solutions that'll work better for both. Then also for the small publishers, you do have the you do have the case of companies like like ours that like are effectively aggregating across a lot of them. So it like build scale, which makes it much more relevant to to advertisers. So um there are ways for small publishers to participate. Small small advertisers, I think clean rooms are gonna be a challenge for because of because of kind of what you're saying, like match rates are gonna be low, your your list is small. Um, and you may, you may need to something like an ID solution to get that scale. The,
0: the trade desk going direct to publishers um, through their, uh, what's it called? Open, open something. path. I, I always forget the name of it. Open um, path. Open path. Thank you. Um, so um, I'd be interested in your thoughts about it. Is that here to stay? Is that a big factor or are they just picking off the biggest publishers they spend money on anyway?
1: So we were the first. Publisher running it with the trade desk. We've been running it since last, oh, just over a year, actually, it was last February. So we have the most experience with it, with it at this point. You know, as a publisher, when you're looking at kind of like ad tech partners, you're looking at incrementality. How much more money am I making because I have this partner? Not just how much, you know, flows through the pipes necessarily. Um, for us, the trade desk open path connection has, you know, started moderately incremental and over the course of the last year has become like, pretty solidly from I thought like pretty it's been like moved in a positive direction it's not a huge share of total trade desk spend we still get trade desk spend coming through a lot of other SSPs and that has been pretty consistent over time so it hasn't radically changed the distribution of where trade desk spend their money with us but they've been a good partner I don't know what trade desk plans are like I I think that it does feel like they're leaning more and more into it they're getting more publishers on board now it seems like they're you know they're getting big ones they're getting kind of more mid-sized ones also I think they're trying to get more more scale and volume there. I think it's probably a lot of good reasons for them to want to do it. So I think it's here to say. The other interesting thing interesting semi-connected to that is in the Yahoo announcement two weeks ago or whatever that they're showing me on the SSP is the fact that that they seem to be continuing to lean into their DSP direct connections we you know we and a few others have a direct connection to the yahoo DSP and we were we weren't sure that was going to stand the test of time but it seems like based on the this new news from yahoo that they're they're leaning in there too so you know are we back in a world where more and more DSPs are going to go and connect directly again I'm not sure
0: yeah that is interesting i didn't know that about the yahoo relationship um, very interesting. Um, when you say incrementality, you, you make more money on the trade desk open path than you would for a different path. Is that primarily because of lower fees, because there's less, uh, less middlemen, or is there something else driving higher incrementality?
1: I think part of it is less fees. Part of it could be – I mean, it, it's – to us, open path, just like, like it looks like any other – SSP. I mean it's a DSP, but it looks like an SSP to us. It's just another pre-bit adapter where you know whoever it is spends money. The reasons why any particular partner can be incremental are fees. It is things like match rate, which obviously like for this, is going to get a slightly better match rate for a variety of reasons when they have code on page um, directly. That that has an impact. It could be things just like speed to respond can increase the bid rate. So there's a bunch of different reasons why a given like path to a publisher can be beneficial and like drive incrementality.
0: And in terms of other DSPs that do this, it's really Yahoo um, that you mentioned. I, I know MediaMath has had this sometimes in the past. And, and Xander doesn't really have this because you they charge a fee on the sell side, right? So yeah. Xander kind of operates like an SSP and a DSP separately. Or am I misunderstanding
1: that? No, you're, you're right for sure on that front. I mean, you've got Criteo, you know, It's sort of weird what they are, but they connect directly also. You know whether it's direct, direct to a publisher, or like through it, like an owned SSP. It's a fair number of the big DSPs now have pretty direct paths to to publishers.
2: So just given you work with so many publishers, you know, my, my sense is your know, cafe is just like you know, so focused on optimizing and, and and driving revenue. Is is there a like? tech stack for publishers that you know you say are you need to have all of these bases covered and i'm not just talking about like the the programmatic stuff you know you talked about like getting your email correct making sure like you've got your your site engagement right is there like you know, a tech stack, a list of best practices. Like, you know, there's a lot of publishers and and, and publisher teams um, li- listen to this. That you know, you think that should be just the baseline for for everyone right now. And you know, what 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 might we not be thinking about if um you know if we're if we're ironing that out?
1: There's no, there definitely is not one answer because it is somewhat dependent on like what is the type of site that you are, the type of audience that you attract, the type of content or tools that are on your. Property. I want to make money,
2: Paul. I'm a I'm a CRO. Exactly. I got a number over my head. News site to put it out there, right? There, there's no yeah. like d- deep specialization. What's the technology stack that I I should have to help me make money and you know drive revenue and keep my job?
1: So, so I think it's funny. Like you, we've actually sort of as we've been talking, mentioned some of like the key components, like. You want to be, you want to have a high performance site, so like Core of Vitals, which is like a lot of that is about measuring how fast your property responds to users, things like that. I think that's really important. That helps you rank well for search. So I think having really good tools to to optimize for search, like there are tools like Semrush and Ahrefs that can help you get lots of like competitive intelligence on like the search terms you're doing well on, things like that. What do you do there? Search tr- as a, as a publisher. Traffic from search engines tends to perform better for advertising than like social traffic or other kinds of traffic because users coming from search are like they're looking for something they're in kind of like an intentful mindset and so they tend to do better from an advertising perspective so like that kind of traffic is valuable. That said, traffic from your own email list, traffic that's like owned traffic, like direct or or via email or something else, like that can do really well also. So it's like kind of owning more of your own traffic is really important, you know. So so performance. Optimizing for search, optimizing for like owning your own traffic. We do a fair amount of work also with like user engagement. Like, how do you recirculate users in your sites? Like we don't, we don't work with and we generally, we we don't work with directly any of like the tabulas or operands or whatever else, but we have our own tools that we give to publishers to let them recirculate traffic in their own sites. Like, how do you help users spend more time and find more things? So like the technology almost is a little bit less important than like the business goals that you're trying to solve. And that is performance building a good audience, getting repeat traffic, getting people spending more time, things like that.
2: Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, so much of what you've talked about there and then you know, touched on a couple of times is about um repeat engagement, audience, good UX, which is, you know, I think you know exceedingly obvious, but it's not top of mind for all the things that that you read, right?
1: You know, a lot of publishers do this do this like where it's like you're chasing the new bright and shiny thing, you're chasing the the new trend. Let's pump out a whole bunch of content based on AI, AI let's pivot to video like it, whatever is the new trend. And like, you know, sometimes you should follow the trend, but sometimes like the the tried and true, like obvious things like they take time, but they really bear fruit and and create a lot of value over time.
0: All right. Well, that was awesome coverage of the state of publishers in 2023. Um, let's transition and do a bit of a news roundup. Um, so, Eric, do you want to tee up Rembrandt, Omar Telecall's new startup? so speaking of of ai um you know there, there's the the chat gpt stuff
2: right so so the text-based prompt-based uh creation tools and then um you know, for a while now there's been all of these uh image um and content creation tools uh stable Diffusion, and 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 so on and so forth so a couple of weeks ago uh there was an announcement of a new company you know full disclosure we we, we invested uh called Rembrandt. this is interesting from a couple of perspectives so you know number one i think um there's just a ton of innovation in ai and generative ai r- right now and i think increasingly it's going to be making its way into the advertising and marketing space um you know for for the reason's why there's sort of like the, you know things sometimes start with advertising and marketing like there's you know big data sets there's the ability to um, you know sort of like move move fast with a w- with a willing customer base so it's you know the first i think you know like real generative AI company that, you know, has hit the radar in 23. Um, you know, number two is uh, the founding team is super interesting. So Omar Tawakoff, for those who are not familiar, um, was the founder and CEO of Blue which was, you know, the first third-party data marketplace, third-party data exchange, you know, sold that to Oracle um, for, for a boatload of money. He then left um, and with um, some of his core team, um, start, start, actually started a voice AI company that was acquired, uh, relatively early in its life, um, by Cisco. And, uh, it's um it's powering a lot of I think some, some of the innovation of, of of Webex um there's still plenty of people that, that use Webex so so you've got like this team that has built um, solutions for data driven marketing in, in Act One um then you know got really deep into AI in, in Act Two and then um, now they're back in, in advertising and Martech and you know it, this isn't a, a rule but you know increasingly seeing a lot of uh you know former successful founders um in the sort of programmatic and data 1.0 era coming back
0: right now um, there's a there, there's a list of them brian Eric, or, you know. this is an amazing elevator pitch but i still don't know what rembrandt does <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> what does Rembrandt it. do edit as much as you want out yeah i realize i'm i'm, I'm you know, being
2: too uh to rear review on on team uh, it's uh it's programmatic product placement using generative ai right so like so much of the content that's out there mostly by creators um, you know, it's like manual to do product placement. You need to get a hold of the product, you know, negotiate with the brand, do, um, you know, the actual placement, get approvals. They're, um, they're number one, you do generative AI to find and then place, uh, product placements in videos, whether new or existing. Um, and number two, sort of building a marketplace around it. So super cool company. Um, good to see, you know, r- real talent coming back, back into this space and, and hopping on the, the AI thing.
0: Yeah, it's exciting. So basically you're watching a a video, maybe it's like an old episode of Friends and uh, in the marketplace, uh, a brand has purchased the right to show their product and they're automatically inserting an image of this brand on the on the table in the kitchen, uh, in, uh, in the apartment and friends or something along those lines, right?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a potential downstream use case They're You know, again, rembrand.com you can you know, sort of see this stuff in, in detail. Um, uh, they're very focused on like creators right now, um, uh, because that's just like a fast growing fertile okay. space, so so to speak, but the applications for content libraries across, you know, everything you, you can imagine is, is there once, once, you know, the, the, the proof of concept
0: is, uh, has happened. So I'm dancing on TikTok, and suddenly there's a Tropicana orange juice bottle uh, in front of in front of my face. That sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> it's a cool thing. Awesome. Well, I think I think actually Triplelift had a product similar to this a couple of years ago, and I'm not, I i do not know if it got much. They scale, did. But part of the issue may have been like that you need AI to like generate these things at scale. while it's almost impossible to get scale around. So it's kind of an interesting interesting uh, new business idea.
0: Old ideas, new again. Uh, this was actually the first idea that Innovit had too. Innovit is a publicly traded video analytics company, and their first demo that they got featured in, like TechCrunch, was almost exactly this. It was like a Heinz bottle on a on a kitchen countertop in in a video in a piece of content. So it's definitely an idea maybe whose time has come. Well, good luck, Omar, and good luck to you, Eric, also on your investment. The next uh, piece of news this week was um, changes at YouTube. Uh, So, uh, Susan Wojcicki uh, is moving on after a pretty successful run as CEO of YouTube. And my friend and former boss, Neil Mohan, is the new head of YouTube. There there was some actual back and forth as to whether he actually got the CEO title of YouTube or not. I'm not sure at this date if it's been confirmed one way or another, but he's the head of YouTube at this point after running its product group for quite some time. So um, I've I'm a big fan of Neil. He's an operator. He gets things done. He's great with product people. Um, he's great with people. So I think it's a pretty big positive. Um, interesting, interested in hearing, you know, uh maybe Paul tell us, you know, what's the sense on how YouTube's been doing and, you know, what the challenges moving forward are. Uh, Eric, feel free to jump in also.
1: I mean, you know, one thing is certainly true. Like, you know, you know, Neil a million times more than than I do, but he has big shoes to fill. Like Susan did an unbelievable job building YouTube into the giant that it is today. So I think like, you know, that's, that's a tough act to follow, but he's a smart guy and I think has a lot of great opportunities. YouTube's last couple of quarters have been soft, as we all know, and how much of that is just like COVID correction and like things will get back on track in the next six to nine months. Or how much of it is like a little bit like things are changing and they really needed a new a new big idea. I'm not sure, um, but it'll be it'll be interesting to see what he does.
2: I've never heard in all of the time I've worked in this space anyone say anything but glowingly positive things about Neil. It's so rare, and um, I don't have a, a you know experience working working with the guy like um like like you did Ari, but you know just like so universally loved and 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 respected in, in the ad tech space. So I think that's. That's really interesting. And uh, legend has it that, uh, he had an offer on the table from Twitter way back in the day when Twitter was, you know, growing like crazy and, you know, sort of clearly had a path to go public, you know, against his legend, rumor, uh, nothing substantiated, but he was paid like a hundred million dollars to stay at Google. Have you guys heard this one? Yeah, it, it, it's
0: more than legend. It was actually written up in the Business Insider. They, they wrote an article. I just love the title of it to this day. It said, this Google exec, exec gets paid more than Carmelo Anthony. Uh, and that was just such a classic. Kind of- <laughs> <laughs> My remembrance of it is that it wasn't Twitter. It was either Box or Dropbox. Um, but uh, I think uh. the story is basically
2: that's um yeah so it just goes to show how much uh, respect and weight he has with it within the organization and you know he's he was the architect of the you know Google's programmatic stack um through acquisition of invite and um
0: and Admeld, right Art? Yeah, he absolutely played the, he played the primary role in selling DoubleClick. Um, he played the primary role in integrating DoubleClick into Google and then ex- executing the kind of 10-year uh, march that Google's been on to dominate all aspects of advertising. I He's going to have a lot of time in Washington, D.C. in his new job.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, so if you if you, if you if you believe that you know YouTube is is the the future of streaming, right? And the and the future of streaming is on the big screen and, and not the little screen. I mean, this is um I think a, a new and bigger market and bigger challenge for the guy and um, anybody that's bet against him in his career today has been has you know has failed. So uh, so I, I think it's I think it's awesome.
0: I do think that Paul had a point about the softness So the last couple of quarters. YouTube growth has definitely been soft. It's actually been down, I think, in the last quarter. Um, and I, I don't know why personally, but it, it feels as though, um, they may need to shake things up a little bit in the way they monetize, their partner, you know, they're from the other perspective, from the perspective of their partners on the CTV world, there's always sort of, complaints about um, that video on YouTube doesn't monetize as well as it should, um, as well as it does on the owned and operated sites. Um, there's complaints about the tech stack. You're not allowed to use your own ad servers. You have to use YouTube or GAM. Uh, and of course, there's the incredibly monopolistic practice of not allowing Trade Desk and other DSPs uh, to buy YouTube inventory, which, you know, it would be quite a miracle if that changed
2: yeah yeah so you know interesting that you know, most of the challenges you, you pointed to are around monetization so again if you if you would you know think about who, who you'd want in times of challenge to, you know to, to to figure out monetization um it's probably him do you guys watch um watch youtube on on the big screen a little bit
0: i'm a subscriber to youtube tv and i love it um i use it instead of uh, cable
2: yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not a subscriber. Um, I just watch it and I sit through the ads and, um, it's great. Like I prefer it to, to looking at it on my, on my phone. Um, so I think the the opportunity ahead is, is, is immense.
1: I, and it's also, you said this sorry, but it's very surprising to me how low YouTube CPMs are compared to like true, C, like air quoting true CTV here. Uh, yeah. it's just as good of an experience and I think the CPMs have a, have a lot of headroom.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a big opportunity that's being missed somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where, but it's there. All right. So we would love to run this podcast. We record it once a week, and we would love to have a week go by where we don't talk about Twitter and Elon (laughs) Musk. But... (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, we live in the modern world. It's 2023. And every week we have to talk about Elon Musk because he keeps making us. Uh, So it came out this week that, um, first of all, this is not about him boosting his own tweets. Um, that, That story was a week ago. This week, the story is that he wants... Twitter ads to work the way Google keywords do and he expressed his frustration on Twitter. He actually just promised everyone they would that obviously we're fixing this, we're going to make the ads work the way they should like on tw- on Google, and then he gave his engineering team a full week to build Google AdWords effectively, and then he was pretty broadly pilloried uh, by people who know what they're talking about, including my friend Bruce Falk, who used to run the Twitter ads, who says, and I quote, as the former lead of ads at Twitter, I can confidently say this man has no idea WTF he's talking about, um, referring to Elon's tweet. Is this even worth us talking about, Eric? Should should we just shut up and move on?
2: <laughs> I mean, how much is there to unpack here? I mean, I think the uh, the challenge to build uh, Google AdWords in um in a in, in a week to an organization that's been um you know you've d- downsized several times via,
0: via layoffs is uh is a is a is a pretty big ask. What, what do you think? Yeah, it seems like a big ask. I mean, after all, it's just text. I mean, how hard could it be?
2: I mean, you know, again, we didn't even talk about this last week, but I thought you actually raised a a really important point that's central to this whole, like, what what should the ad experience, what should the ad business of of Twitter look like, which was around the Super Bowl. So if you recall during the Super Bowl, um, if you were... Uh, you know, scrolling around on, on various other, uh, social, um, media apps like TikTok and, and what have you are. You, you sort of like kind of ch- checked off the list of what you did. You know, there were sponsorships. There was, you know, on the field stuff. There were all the, these unique things. And then on Twitter, people were arguing about politics. So just yeah, like, absolutely. The, the most important media event of the year. You're, you're not just like all in and, you know, making that your biggest day, right? Your biggest. Um, Your your Super Bowl, I would probably start there because people were talking about Super Bowl, but nobody was really doing anything in terms of the, the, you know, sort of like the content and, and ad space.
0: Yeah, you open up Twitter on the day of the Super Bowl and the feed might have some tweets about the Super Bowl might not. Um, in order to get a good ad experience, you have to go to the search or discover tab, um, select sports or select, select the Super Bowl. Um, and then watch a video, which plays really thumbnail size to by default tiny. audio off by default, a tiny audio off. And then they put a pre-roll from like, you know, whatever advertiser before it it really not a great experience and then you open up TikTok and immediately starts playing the black keys pregame show uh, with volume on sounding great with a big Super Bowl banner like join TikTok for for a Super Bowl content um, and the next four things you scroll by are all um, sort of semi-sponsored um, monetizable videos um, it's just like black or white um, yeah and yeah, I think the. Go ahead, Ari. Finish the point. <laughs> I just, the problem's not the keywords, I guess is my my point.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's just if, if Twitter is about what's happening in the in, in the moment, um, you know, designing an ad experience around that, you know, I think is a is a good first step. But I mean, Paul, just given you know how Twitter in many ways it's a it's a big publisher, right? Yeah. Um, as someone who advises publishers. And you start thinking about you know what if you actually looked at this bottoms up and programmatic and data and so on and so forth. Do you have any like take on this? Like what what would you do? How would you advise Elon?
1: That's a yeah, that's a big question, right? I, I do think what both of you are saying is right. Like you got you gotta know what you're best at. Like Twitter is never going to be about the keywords or competing with Google for for that world, but like it's great at certain things. And how do you lean into those things more? Like I don't like I think Ari's example of what TikTok. Like is great for TikTok, but even that may not be right for Twitter. And it's like what's right for Twitter? Figuring that out and like leaning hard into that is what they have to do. And it feels like it's just a it's a mishmash of random ideas at this point and not like a clear, coherent, like long term strategy. And and I think that's the key.
0: Also, keywords is just such a 10, 15-year-old concept. Like, I would think, Paul, like, if your, your publishers don't think about keywords as, like, kind of a, the way to organize their content, they think about behavior and, you yeah. know, frequency of behavior and things like that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah,
1: it's, it's, not, it's not the way the world is going
0: at all. I mean, I read Twitter pretty, like, every 10 seconds uh, through my waking day. <laughs> and... <laughs> I'll say uh, half of the tweets, I literally don't understand. Like I read them and I don't have enough context to understand them. And it's like someone saying that what the New York Times said last week was not as incorrect as the other person who criticized that person. And I just wonder, if I, a human being who's pretty on top of the stuff, cannot literally understand the context of these tweets, how well is an algorithm going to be able to, to tease out the keywords to show an ad? All right. Yeah. There's, yeah there's,
2: there's, my a, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> my, my only ask is, Elon, please don't, please don't break my, uh, my Tesla.
0: Yeah. Don't break Eric's Tesla. Elon, if you need help with your ad group, you can call me. So I'd be happy to say, no, thank you. I don't work for lunatics. Um, and <laughs> we'll go from there. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's call this episode. Uh, Paul uh, from Cafe Media. Thank you so much for being here. Thank uh, you. Eric, until tonight? next week. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Until me, Paul. next week. Until next week, we'll wait for Elon to do something else crazy.
1: <laughs> Thank you for subscribing to Architecture. New interviews
2: are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.